Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, February 27th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Andrea, it's great to hear you, but I've heard you somewhere else this week. Congratulations oh. on the launch of your new podcast. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm really excited about it. It's called Cadence, and it's uh, the whole idea is to explore what music can tell us about the mind. It's essentially my you know, pet project, because of course, it's my two interests, the brain and music coming together. It's in, in some ways much more produced than this podcast, uh, because there's a lot of questions that I have, and I wanted to answer them within, you know, one season, uh, sort of more like some of the other podcasts out there. So this is a limited run. You're not leaving us here at Inquiring Minds. I'm not leaving mm-hmm. you, no. No, it's a limited run. Right now, I'm, I've planned for 10 episodes that they're each uh, under 30 minutes. So that's the plan. They'll be released on Wednesdays every two weeks. So we just released the first one. Uh, the second one is coming out very soon. And we have the season planned. And then we'll see where it goes after that. Some of your favorite researchers um, around music and the brain appear in episode one. Diana Deutsch, who you often talk about, and uh, Charles Lim, who works at my university. Yeah, he's an ear surgeon, and he has two ways in which he's participating into the in the podcast. One is as a person who restores hearing to people who are deaf, and the question is, well, how then do they respond to music? And the second is that he's also a pioneer in researching musical creativity. He's done some really seminal neuroimaging work on jazz improvisation. What does the brain look like when you're improvising on the fly? Um, so he comes into the podcast when we're talking about both of those topics. But if you're local to the Bay Area, you can actually come and hear a conversation that Charles and I will have uh, for the City Arts and Lectures NPR program, which is uh, taped uh, live at the Norse Theater on March 7th. So I guess live is kind of a misnomer because it doesn't go on the radio right away, but you can come and see a live taping of the show. Are you going to play some music? Yes, there's actually going to be some music. I'm not going to play, but we have the SF Jazz High School All-Stars who are going to come and play some jazz, and we're going to talk about what's going on in their brains as they do it. Awesome. So everyone, check out Cadence, and then come see Andre and Charles in person on March 7th.
Last week, I was at the AAAS conference. This is the largest scientific society in the world, and their annual meeting had a very different tone than most scientific meetings you'll ever go to. Uh, this year, there was a lot of discussion around science policy, uh, science funding, but then science protests and even scientists running for public office. And there was this sort of frustration and anger sort of boiling underneath, underneath the surface all surrounded by a big cloud of uncertainty. But if you dug a notch deeper, the big discussion at the conference was gene editing. Last week, the National Academy of Science released a new report on human gene editing, advising that human trials should only proceed with the most stringent oversight, and we're simply not there yet. They strongly advised against any germline genome editing. This is where editing prevails to the next hereditary sample. Strong language, not really surprising that they argued against it, but frankly, we won't get there unless other nations sign on to this idea. And this report was followed on its heels by a patent ruling in the big CRISPR-Cas9 case, where the Broad Institute at MIT won a financial victory by having their patents upheld over uh, the University of California, Berkeley, including on any eukaryote especially agriculture and livestock. Yeah, but I heard Jennifer Dowden on NPR actually talking about the ruling and saying that she wasn't too concerned ultimately because there's still another case that's been filed in which the sort of the way the patent will be interpreted is going to come to bear. Absolutely. Like there's a long way to go. There's probably appeals ahead of us. And whether the licensing moves forward through the Broad, as you said, there's many cases to come. And whether the system they patented is going to be the patent that actually gets licensed out is a big question. But there's one aspect of the story that really caught my eye is when they're battling over the finances of who wins the license, one of the biggest areas they're talking about is in livestock and agriculture. Forget the human editing. And that's something we heard very little about. But at AAAS, I saw one speaker really talk about how gene editing is taking off in animals. So this week, I talked to Allison von Einemann. She is a researcher at UC Davis that works in animal genomics and biotechnology in the context of livestock, both to improve efficiency and improve disease resistance. This is not an area I've really thought much about uh, but what is your initial reaction to gene editing, not in us, but in the food that we eat and grow? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's it, it's it echoes the conversation about genetically modified organisms. This is just genetic modification in a different way. And, you know, I think that the safety of it is, of course, paramount. And I'm sure people are going to be putting very high bars for passing safety tests uh, before the food comes to market. Um, but I'm also not surprised that this would be the first way that it would be used since, you know, de-extinction is a, a very kind of sexy topic. But livestock, you know, what we eat is very much a kind of thing that we have to think about every single day. And it has very obvious commercial appeal. And People who have been providing us with our food have been messing with the genes of the organisms that they grow for centuries. No doubt. And think about it this way, though, is some of the 
biggest gains we've made in environmental protection have come through these breeding programs in terms of reducing the carbon footprint of these animals because we haven't changed many of our eating habits. Or, in fact, our eating habits have strongly increased towards eating more protein from animals. So is she going to create a cow that doesn't fart? <laughs> One would hope. But think about this. What if we had one gender chickens? So instead of raising a male and female constantly, that we just were able to make the female, which is the desired sex when it comes to uh, laying eggs. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So I know about sexing chickens, but what happens to all those poor boy chickens? I think you know where they end up. I don't think we have to talk about it much. But do they become food? They do. So all the food we eat is boy chickens and all the eggs Not we all. Eat. Not all. But yes, they do end up there. Okay. Well, I guess <laughs> there's, more, there's more to that conversation that we'll have to wait for the interview. All right. With that, let's take a short break. We'll be back with my interview with Allison von Einemann. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places, try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just head out into nature. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. And one of my favorite features is Driver Easy Speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they'll listen, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Allison, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me, Kishore. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is there is a lot of conversation about gene editing happening uh, with the patent ruling, with the issuing of a new National Academies report on the topic. But you focus on gene editing in a totally different regime, gene editing in the context of livestock and, ag and agriculture. Can you give us a little sense of how gene editing is intersecting with that topic area? Sure. So I work in animal breeding and basically the way gene editing kind of intersects with animal breeding is it's as with in human editing, it's, it's a mechanism to alter specific genes and introduce useful genetic variation into breeding programs. Um, and really I see it as kind of a synergistic complement to what we already do in animal breeding. So we're selecting the best animals. Now we can use this technology to put a cherry on top of that ice cream sundae, if you will, and maybe add a, a trait like disease resistance to pig breeding programs in using editing to achieve that particular disease. Are there particular traits that you just can't achieve through typical breeding mechanisms that you really are focused on from the editing standpoint? Because it seems like breeding is just more, it will be more cost efficient than editing, which seems like a potentially expensive process. Well, that's not necessarily true. So if I have a useful genetic variation in one breed, for example, and I want to introduce it into a different breed, um, I can cross that breed together with my breed. But if I have a dairy animal and I cross a beef animal, I've just brought half of the beef genetics along and I need to now back cross to get back to my excellent dairy genetics, which in the case of cows takes 20 years. Um, and so, for example, the research we're working on is introducing an allele from beef cattle that makes them not grow horns, we'd like to introduce that just that allele for the gene that grows horns into dairy cattle without diluting all of the excellent dairy genetics that makes them 
excellent milk producers. What's the advantage of them not having horns? <laughs> <laughs> so the people are unaware, perhaps, that dairy cattle typically grow horns. It came along with just selection for dairy cattle. It really doesn't produce excellent milk producers. Um, but the horns are problematic from both an animal welfare perspective. They they gore each other and they also can harm their human handlers and so it's fairly routine to remove those horns um, using heat when the calves are, are young um, so they're burnt off basically um, and here we're trying to use genetics to solve that problem so that we just have them born genetically without horns. How much work has been done in the sector already? Gene editing is something that you know largely didn't exist 10 years ago and it seems like it's come on the scene in, in, in such a rapid occurrence how much has uh, have progress has been made in the um, in gene editing in in this field? Yeah, so gene editing actually, although CRISPR's getting all the sexy techn- uh, publicity, has been around for for about a decade. So there's zinc fingers and, and you know some of the older technologies like tailings. Um, but in terms of actual use of this technology in animal breeding, there's about eight or nine separate applications that have successfully been um, performed in animals. So for example, the polled or hornless dairy cattle I just mentioned, disease resistant pigs. Um, there's a group in China that just had. Uh, TB, uh, animals, cows that are less susceptible to TB. There's groups at the Roslyn Institute that have used it to produce pigs that are going to be resistant, hypothetically, um, to African swine fever. So typically breeders are using this to try to introduce useful genetic variation that's hard to access through traditional breeding programs. Everything you've mentioned so far is disease resistance or or for welfare. Is there also considerations on improving efficiency, like whether they potentially grow faster or live longer lifespans, anything along those lines? Yeah, so there is um, a couple of groups have worked on an edit that's called myostatin, which basically um, makes the animals have about 30% higher meat yield um, in cattle and sheep. And so there are groups working to that. Basically, if you look at the objective of animal breeders, typically we're trying to breed for optimum animals. Those are animals that are productive and don't get sick. Um, And that's why you'll see particularly disease resistance featuring very prominently in the types of applications breeders are going after. Now with human editing, there's been a lot of discussion on regulation and ethics. Uh, what is the regulatory environment for gene editing in in uh, livestock? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. So, you know, traditional genetic engineering done kind of the old-fashioned way, if you will, where you're introducing a gene from a different species like the, the fast-growing salmon. Um, you had a, a recombinant DNA construct or a gene that was getting expressed that you'd brought into the genome. And that was regulated as a new animal drug by the FDA. And that was basically, it's a mandatory process and you have to go through a regulatory evaluation showing it's safe and effective. And so the salmon, for example, did that process and it took, mm, I don't know, 20 years and cost $60 million. Uh, and so it was really a very extensive process. And so there was some thought that with editing, um, because you're not introducing a recombinant DNA construct or you're just really um, tweaking natural DNA variation, maybe just turning a gene off, you're not introducing new, you know, an animal drug, as it were, that it wouldn't trigger regulatory oversight. But uh, two days uh, before the uh, presidential inauguration, there was a release from the FDA of a draft guidance suggesting that they are going to um, regulate all intentional genetic modifications of animals as drugs. Are they equipped to even do that? <laughs> well, I guess as a developer, if I think about this, or a scientist working in this area, every single snip 
change is potentially a new animal drug. And so I'm like, okay, DNA is not, oh, I guess DNA is a drug. I mean, we're all, the form and function we take is based on the DNA we inherited from our parents, right? So I guess in that form, it's a drug, but I'd argue we're all drugs then. And so how do I know which are the edits that are specifically intentionally done by me? Well, maybe in the case of the cows, I specifically made that change of the allele so they don't grow horns. But what about other edits that are in the cow? Was that intentionally made or was it unintentionally made? It's, it becomes very um, complicated to interpret. Do we know why the FDA issued the, these new guidelines? Is, there, is it a reaction to public input or is it uh, the new administration has new thoughts on this? <laughs> well, I think this was done actually before the new administration took um, governance. So I think it's probably from the old one. Um, I think that the... the, the, the the way that you read the new animal drug regulations, it's basically FDA was exercising authority of recombinant DNA was used in the process of producing the animal. Well, you might argue that CRISPR or Talens is using recombinant DNA in the process of the adam- making the animal. What's kind of unusual is if there's no new animal drug, how can you exercise regulatory enforcement through the new animal drug statute? <laughs> um, and that really, I think, is where it's a little bit wobbly. And really, it's not very well suited, I think, to some of these modifications that don't introduce novel genetic variation. There's also a lot of ethical concerns here as well. Like this is an area that um, has probably a, a great deal of public concern, but it doesn't get the coverage of, of human editing. What could this look like in terms of having public input on this issue? So we're talking now about specifically animal breeding, and I think often the ethical issues related to germline modification go straight to babies, right, um, as, as they should. Um, to me, animal breeding has a very different set of, of kind of ethical concerns, and of course, as animal breeders, we've dramatically modified our livestock species, and the plant people have too, in terms of what they look like versus what their ancestors did. Um, and typically, as I mentioned, breeders are really trying to produce optimum animals that are, that are well-suited to the environment and don't get sick. Um, and basically, the animal breeding per se hasn't been regulated by the federal government. You can bring a new breed of cow to market with no regulatory oversight at all. And, and maybe, I don't know why, but you might select animals that are not well suited to the environment. Um, and that wouldn't trigger um, a, a unique regulatory evaluation. And so I guess the, the ethics of breeding has really been left up to the breeding companies to try to develop animals that are well suited. The reason I bring it up is we, we've just gone through a phase and still currently are in this phase where we've seen an incredible public reaction to GMOs, which from a scientific standpoint, we don't see many tremendous issues with them uh, being utilized in food systems. But the reaction from um, consumers has been different. And And I'm curious if you feel like animal breeding is going to be pushed in that direction as well? If, is that a, a concern you have or you feel like this is an area just because of history of how it's been handled is not going to be an area of concern? Well, it's, it's kind of intriguing to me as an animal breeder. I use a lot of different methods in my breeding program, genomic selection, artificial insemination, embryo transfer, and they don't seem to engender much public interest. Um, but if I start talking about genetic engineering or GMOs, it, you know, kind of everybody's heads explode. Um, and it's kind of, you know, basically animal breeders have not been able to use GMO technology, genetic engineering at all. We haven't got one commercialized product available on the market. So it's 
more or less precluded the use of that technology by, by public sector breeders. What concerns me is that this is going to happen to genome editing as well because there are some really good uses of the technology that I think are associated with very little risk and a lot of potential benefit to the animals and to the environmental sustainability of our food production. And so before we preclude the use of this technology, I think we need to have a good thought about, well, what are the opportunity costs associated with not allowing the use of this technology? Because that has to somehow work into this risk equation. At the moment, we just look at risks. We don't really kind of weigh the benefits of not adopting technology because that comes with consequences as well. Not to sound cynical, do you think that's possible given that there's going to be a shroud of human editing over this entire discussion? Because this is an area that people just don't know much about. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting thing you bring up regarding the use of genetic engineering in food. Yes, that's been controversial, but we just totally embrace it in human medicine, right? So insulin and, and also in our food production in terms of, you know, renin for cheese and the like. So there's, yes, there's, there's public backlash against GMOs, but only as it relates to food. And so if we're talking human medicine applications of editing, you know, I think that's going to have a different set of, of concerns relative to food production. Now, there's been a lot of recent rulings on patents related to gene editing that has come out just in the last week. But this whole sector that you're operating in, how does that intersect with the with the legal cases that are ongoing right now? <laughs> well, the beauty of working at a public university is that I can do my research without regard to such things. Um, however, of course, uh, at the end of the day, for things to go to market, um, which is really not my interest, but the commercial companies, they're going to have to have freedom to operate. And so I think that, you know, that the ruling around the, the CRISPR is it makes it a bit unclear as to who exactly owns that technology for use in, in livestock production. Then there's other editors like Talons that you know some companies believe they have the right to, to operate with, and so um, I think it's all a little bit muddy at the moment. And I, I, what concerns me most about that CRISPR decision was it seems like um, a scientist talking quite rationally about um, the potential limitations of technology and being a little bit uh, not so bullish about the attitude towards her technology you know, could come back to bite bite you. And I think that as scientists, we have to be a little bit precautious about, you know, well, this is not going to solve the world's problems. You know, editing in animals is not the be-all and end-all. It's the cherry on top of breeding programs. And I think I don't want to overstate that um, because I, I think it's, you know, it's got a very distinct use to really deal with Mendelian type traits where we know that changing one particular allele will give us a particular trait. That's not common in breeding. Most of our traits are quantitative and controlled by thousands of genes. And so, you know, it won't address some of those traits in in our animal breeding programs. Tracking back to the the science and, and the breeding itself, I mean, this is myopic. When I first, you know, started researching this topic, I thought animal breeding has kind of reached a level of maturity. And and there's a lot of indications for me that we're we're not remotely there. That there's so many more frontiers. Uh, can you give us an example of a few things that are really down the line that are interesting questions for, that are challenging the space? Well, let me give you a little bit of historical context in terms of animal breeding. If we look at animal productivity in the 50s versus today, obviously breeders have selected for animals that are more productive and better suited to the environment. And if we hadn't adopted 
advanced breeding technologies like artificial insemination and, and the like. At the moment, I think we raise about 8.5 billion B chickens in the United States to eat annually. If we hadn't improved them genetically since the 50s, we'd need to raise an additional 8 billion. Um, and so that environmental footprint discussion is very rarely put in the context of, of animal breeding. But looking forward to the future, you know, some of the things that I think um, we're working on is trying to develop single gender uh, animals for industries where one gender is not particularly useful. And, and sorry about this, Kishore, but boys in, in broiler in, uh, egg-laying chickens, not a very useful uh, animal. I can deal with that. Yeah, I'm okay, so I'm okay what, not being useful in that What context. we would like to do is only hatch out the girls. Um, and I think that, you know, those types of things instantly overnight you've effectively halved the number of animals you're producing or doubled your efficiency however you want to look at that and you've got rid of an animal welfare concern in terms of, of disposal of those male chicks um, so those are some of the things that, that um, people are working on there's also um, from a human medicine application um, some things along the lines of organ complementation in, in what animals. does organ complementation mean so here we're and now we're talking human medicine we've moved from agriculture but basically if you can develop a pig that's unable to grow its own pancreas and you're able to add some cells from a patient that requires a pancreas in the um, embryo, basically those cells can conceptually contribute to the pancreas in that pig and be used for transplantation surgery back to the patient. Got it. I've never heard it referred to as complementation. <laughs> uh, the other question that uh, that sort of comes up is is the acceleration curve that you that you painted historically from the 50s to today are we still on that much of a rise in terms of where we're going Yes, we are. Um, if you look at dairy cattle um, production, for example, there was a technology called genomic selection that was introduced in 2009, which basically uh, used SNP chips to is assay 50,000 markers in the genome and, and kind of associated that with genes that were associated with, with improved uh, dairy performance. And basically, you can now uh, genotype animals at birth and, and make earlier selection decisions. That technology enabled actually a doubling of the rate of genetic gain um, in dairy cattle, who have been pretty extensively selected for, for many years. And you'd think eventually you'd get to a maximum. But with, with both um, corn selection and dairy cattle selection, it seems like it's still going up at a linear rate, which suggests that there must be new mutations occurring all the time that breeders are, are selecting for to enable progress to continue every year like that. And, and one last question. Is this breeding um, work, is it a, a global issue that's being addressed in, in many countries around the world, or is, this, is the focus here in the U.S.? Oh, no, this is a global issue. Um, so if you look at, for example, dairy cattle selection and, and pro breeding programs, that's all over the globe. And what's really interesting to me is genomic selection uh, was so rapidly adopted by every single country in terms of now integrating that into their breeding programs. And so in two, 2009, what is it? Not even a decade, and every um, breeding entity in the world is now using that in their dairy cattle production wow, programs. Wow, that's incredible adoption. I would think there would be resistance from uh, for that kind of proliferation just because we don't have great examples of 
anything being proliferated that fast well, in, in it, many sectors. Yeah, it's one of the fastest adopted technologies. And I think because it, it improved the accuracy of selection on young male candidates. You know, you can't, because you can't milk a bull, it's really hard to estimate the genetic merit of a bull. And so this gave you an opportunity to do that without having to produce daughters from him and milking them. Um, and because it had such value, it was rapidly adopted by the by breeding programs for dairy are typically um, state supported in most countries. And so it's, it's, it's you know, the breeding organizations throughout the world that adopted it. One last note, because animal breeding is not a topic that comes up a lot <laughs> in, in public conversation. Is, is there something that you really want to impart to uh, just sort of a, a, a person walking down the street having, having dinner about what's happening behind the scenes to get a more efficient pipeline to, to their plate? Right. Well, I guess, uh, you know, you need to change your friendship group if animal breeding isn't a common uh, discussion point with your <laughs> friends. But anyway, um, you know, I think what's often seen is or, or assumed by people is that breeders are only interested in, in productivity. And in fact, if you look at breeding objectives, especially in the last 20 years, there's a lot of consideration given there to the health of the animal and um, fertility and the likes. And in fact, in the dairy cattle breeding objectives for the United States, now milk productivity doesn't even feature. Um, and so we're interested in trying to produce optimal animals that are well suited to their environment, that have longevity, fertility, and uh, can produce milk. And so I think that there's a, there is an understanding of the importance of welfare traits and health traits, and they are incorporated into breeding objectives now. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Alison, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for the opportunity. So she clearly has had a lot of people comment on genetically modified organisms. <laughs> you know, I think that, uh, you know, she's she's well used to uh, the controversy and the conversation. Um, but what was most interesting to me was all the different uses that she sees that this gene editing tool, I guess we should call it, can have in, in agriculture. I, there are so many different ways in which it can be applied that I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, I think there's two messages here. It's not just CRISPR-Cas9, which we hear all about. There's many different systems at play and that they're going to be used a lot because there's huge economic and environmental benefits plus to the welfare of the animals themselves. So there's a moral benefit too. And I thought that was the interesting argument is that there is animal welfare here that us not doing this, not exploring this, you know, leaves these animals in in situations that we have the power to improve. Yeah, like the whole horns question. That was very interesting. I mean, on the one hand, you have, you know, people who say, well, we shouldn't eat meat at all. We shouldn't eat animals at all. So that's like one extreme part of the view. And then you have people who you know want to continue to eat meat, but want to have those animals raised in a way that is as ethically responsible as can be, given that we're raising them for food. And so in that case, you would think that removing horns, which would allow them not to hurt each other, prevent them from hurting each other and, you know, causing pain would be a good thing. But I'm sure in the Venn diagram of people who are, you know, believe in the ethical treatment of animals, even when they're being raised for food, and people who are, you know, averse to eating genetically modified organisms, that there are some people who fall there in the middle. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond to, you know, these using these kinds of tools, 
you know, on the one hand, you're taking genes away. So I've heard people say, well, then that's really not... That's not a cow anymore? That's something different? No, that it's not genetic. You're not adding anything. So how mm. can it be dangerous if you're just taking something away? Um, I don't like that argument for so many reasons. <laughs> it's not a good argument. And it's not based on, you know, a real deep understanding of how DNA works. Um, but I think for some people who the idea of, well, we're just taking something away as opposed to we're putting something in does seem qualitatively different. I think the argument that I often hear about the concerns of gene editing is always couched in the unanticipated consequences area. Mm -hmm. And uh, unanticipated consequences often gets talked about in the human context. And what's really clear from these conversations is that's not where that conversation needs to be. It should be in this animal area. If we're going to talk about what whether we should use this or not, this is where it is. The cow that removing the cow horns is the is the place we should have this discussion. Yeah, I mean, I th I think that interestingly enough, I I almost wonder whether these patent lawsuits have forced some ethical conversations to happen about the use of these tools, which is ultimately a good thing, you know, and. And you could argue it's about the money, but it's also about the ethical use. And, and um, I think the two in this case do overlap a bit. Um, but I also think that, you know, there is this this leap about using these tools to create human beings. There is a, a kind, you know, there, there is a, a qualitative difference. No question, because we're talking about we're talking about babies. That's what everyone or everyone's yeah. minds go to. There's no question about that. I'm really curious, like she mentioned the new regulations that the FDA implemented right before the inauguration, whether that's going to sustain in a in a government that's really focused on deregulating markets mm -hmm. and, and what that does to this conversation. Because you're not going to have conversation about ethics when there's no regulation in place. There's no incentive for that conversation to happen at all. It will be really interesting to see how this administration presides over what I think are going to be some pretty groundbreaking uh, advances in the use of this technology. And, you know, they're the ones who are going to have to decide how this technology is used. And certainly their uh, stance on deregulation is going to come uh, in, you know, it's going to butt heads with the sort of ethical, genetic, you know, questions that it will, it will bring up. I think we're going to get it. I think we're going to get the hornless cows. <laughs> oh, and just lady chickens. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. If you want to listen to my podcast, Cadence, you can find it on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many outlets. And I just want to say thanks to Jeremy Schulman, our longtime editor who's moving on to brighter and better things at Mother Jones. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Jian. Wait, that sounds like he's leaving us, and that makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> he's just covering a different part of the world. <laughs> and we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Music
At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.